The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Glad you're all here today. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to Romans uh, chapter 8. You can also follow along in the YouVersion app where we have all the verses uh, listed out for you. When Ann and I first moved here to Scotts Bluff five and a half years ago, we spent about two and a half weeks trying to figure out why we were always drinking water, why we were always putting chapstick on, and we were always putting lotion on our hands. And then someone talked to us about how dry it is here. And I was only gone for a week. I was in Virginia this past week. And just being here for like 12 hours right now, I just feel the moisture leaving my body. Um, It's crazy how quickly that happens. Um, So over the last two chapters in Romans uh, chapters 6 and 7, Paul's really done a good work at, at sort of putting us into a corner with the text. To the Gentiles, he says, of course you have freedom in Christ. Of course you have freedom. But that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want to do. Because the wages of sin is death. And then to the Jews, he says, of course the law matters, but it doesn't matter in the way that you think that it matters. It doesn't provide life. But what the law does do is it reveals the reality of our sinfulness. And to both of those audiences, you see what I'm doing here, if you've been here for the last couple months, to both of those audiences, he says this, all you can do, all you can do is receive the free gift of eternal life that's available to you through Jesus Christ. That's all you can do. You can't not sin your way into the kingdom. You can't follow the law into the kingdom. All you can do is receive the free gift of eternal life. But as we talked about last week, sin is real. Sin still has power. Sin still wages influence over every one of our lives. And what we're tempted to do is we're, we're tempted to respond um, to that with, with sort of flouting our freedom. Like we can't help ourselves, so let's just do whatever we want to. God's going to save us anyway. We'll continue to sin so that, so that grace may abound Or we'll swing the pendulum the opposite direction and we will try really, really, really hard to keep the law. We will commit ourselves to being obedient to the law. But the reality of it is, no matter how hard we try, we fail, right? This is what we talked about last week. Even when we want to do the right thing, we are not able to do the right thing. And this is... This is real life because there's, there's a power at work against us. There's something that we are fighting every single day of our lives, every single hour of our lives. And this sin is constantly calling to us and it's constantly beckoning to us to follow it, to be obedient to that law of sin. And this sounds pretty hopeless, if we're going to be honest about it. This is a hopeless situation, and it's true. It is a hopeless situation. 
No matter how hard we try to break free from the power of sin, there's something that's still going on inside of us. Last week, we, as we read the end of Romans chapter 7, we got to this point, and again, this is the NIV version. Paul says, what a wretch I am. Who will save me from this body of death? See, this is a person who, who recognizes the reality of the sin that still surrounds him. And doesn't just surround him, but is, but is still going on inside of him. See, Paul knows that he's a wretch. Paul knows that he needs something beyond himself. So who will save us? Where does, where does the fix come from? Well, it doesn't come from ourselves. We can't save ourselves. It doesn't come from the people that we, that we sometimes tend to think are going to be able to help us. It doesn't come from our spouse, or it doesn't come from our pastors, or it doesn't come from our coworkers. And not that those people can't speak truth into our lives. But one of the things that I, I see and hear from so many people is this, is this need for, for affirmation and approval of other people. They look at people who, who are maybe further down along the road than they are, and they think, if I could just be like that person, if I could just have more of that person in my life. And see, that's not, that's not the fix. Romans 7.25 tells us the fix. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So, so how does God respond? See, when we know the reality of our situation, that, that try as we might, we can't be obedient to God. Even when our brains want us to, we, we can't. How does God respond to that? What does God do? Well, how do we respond to the people that hurt us over and over and over again? How do we respond to people when they treat us poorly for the thousandth time? How do we respond when our coworker gossips about us again? When our coworker lets us down again? Well, we respond by, we up armor, right? We, we put our armor on. We decide that our, our trust is faltering and, and, and we're going to be really cautious around those people. And I think there's some wisdom in that. We decide that we're not going to fall for it again. But what happens when we are living out the truth of Romans chapter 7? Where we deeply, because of the truths that God has ingrained in our brains, like I, there's part of me that so desperately wants to be obedient to God. Isn't that true of you? And yet at the same time, there's some part of me that desperately just doesn't want to have anything to do with God. How does, how does God respond to this? I love 8 verse 1. So now, so just in the middle of this, in the middle of this reality, that we want to be obedient, we want to do the right thing, and we can't. 
So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't condemn you. In the middle of your wanting to do the right thing and not being able to do the right thing, God doesn't condemn you. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about this in our, in our Thursday night small group. Sometimes we have this mindset that, that we've, we've sinned again. And by again, I mean the exact same sin 82 million times, right? We've all been there. And we go to God to confess God. And what happens is we, we, we metaphorically, we spiritually walk into that throne room. And here's what we think happens. We think God sees us walking down the aisle and he's like, okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Be right back. Hold on. what <laughs> right we think we think that's how god responds to us we think we have worn god down and he's so frustrated and the reality of it is he he doesn't condemn us he doesn't do that he's more like the father who runs to the prodigal son in that story. See, that's who God is. He doesn't run and hide because you're coming to him again and again and again. We're not condemned because, because we belong to him. That's what verse 1 tells us. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Note that it doesn't say that there's no condemnation for those who overcome sin on their own. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who keep the law perfectly. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you're not condemned because you're better than your neighbor. See, what it says is we're not condemned because we belong to him. As I've just been pondering this, one of the greatest conclusions that you could ever come to in your entire life is that God loves you. Like you. And I think I've talked about this before. God loves you. Not in the sense like, well, God, then again, God loves everybody. God like actually, actually, individually loves you. He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do, our sin doesn't surprise God. God has never, never been flabbergasted by your sin. He's never been surprised by it. A friend of mine earlier this week um, posted this on Facebook. She's a, she's a new mom. And this is what she said. I never thought I would have to tell my nine-month-old daughter not to drink the bathwater. Parents, anyone identify with that? Anne has the greatest book idea in the world. It's a book that's filled with things that we never thought that we would tell our kids. And here's her title. 
Don't put that booger in your pocket. <laughs> right? Things like things we never thought we would say to our kids or to our grandkids. Like God's not living in a world where he's surprised by your sin. He's not. He's not putting his head in his hands and like, I can't believe this person did this. Jesus knew exactly what and who he was buying in you. Exactly. This is verses 2 to 3. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So here's what Paul's trying to, here's what Paul's trying to communicate for the last three chapters. Is sin doesn't have any power over us unless we give it power over us. Do you see that in the text? Sin actually has no power over you unless you give it power. Unless you allow it to work in your life. Sin has no power unless you give it power. Sin only has the power that we allow it to have. And we're starting to see this shift in the text. Chapter 7, I know what I should do. But I don't do it. Why don't I do it? Is it because sin is so powerful that I can't resist? That's just not true. I don't know what your sin is, but there's a pretty good chance, at least right now in this moment, you're not doing it for some reason, right? What would it be like if the reason we weren't doing our sin was because of the power of the Holy Spirit? Not because this is like, it would be inappropriate for us to sin in our normal ways in this space. What would it be like if we trusted the Holy Spirit for that? See, we have a level of power. We have a level of control in our lives. We are not bound by sin. That's what Paul has been trying to tell us. Jesus was our sacrifice. And he's transforming us. And this is why it's this, it's specifically because of this transformation that we feel the tension in us to not do what we want to do. That's called the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Or to do what you should do. And like that tension is evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. How can I know if the Holy Spirit's in my life? Do you feel any tension in your life? Feel any pressure? A couple years ago, our grandkids—they were—I think they were doing something with pumpkins, and the pumpkin was sitting on the counter. And our daughter took this video of our grandson Grayson, and literally, he's sitting on the table, and he's like this. I don't have any hair, but he's like grabbing his hair, and he's like agonizing. And Katie says, Grayson, what's wrong? And he goes, the pumpkin is sitting over there and I just can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> right? Like that's, like that's, man. 
That's so perfect. Don't you feel that way sometimes with your sin? See, that's evidence that God is working in your life. Here's verses 4 to 8. He did this. Jesus did this as a sacrifice for our sin. God declared an end to sin's control. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under control of their sinful nature can never please God. See, one of the things that that we need to recognize is the law requires a penalty for sin. And Christ has paid that penalty. That's really good news, by the way. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. Somebody had to, and Jesus was that person. And now, because of that, we, we have work to do. So we have a choice that, that we can make. That's the work we do. We're not working to earn our salvation. We're working because we're saved. But we have work to do. Jesus has done this work, and now I have the ability you, as a person who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you have the ability to not give in to sin. How do we know if we have the Spirit? Paul answers that question. Like, what do you spend your time thinking about? This is such a gut check for us, isn't it? What do you spend your time thinking about? What's on your mind We went through this list last week from Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, division. Do you spend your time thinking about a better job? Do you spend your time thinking about a spouse? Do you spend your time thinking about a better spouse? Do you spend your time thinking about more money? See, what Paul is telling us here is these things lead to death. They just lead to death. And I wonder if you've, like, if you've ever experienced that. There are times in my own life when, when I give in to sin where I am just painfully aware of the death that my sin has brought upon my soul. I want to get out from underneath it. These things lead to death and will never please God this way. And as I was reading through this last week, I thought, well, there's, there's a twist. This little throwaway part of the verse, pleasing God. See, as people who, who claim to have the spirit of God dwelling within us, our lives are supposed to be spent in pursuit of, of pleasing God. You ever thought about that? Like really thought about it. That my life is supposed to be spent in pursuit of pleasing God. 
See, some of us, probably most of us, are really focused on pleasing ourselves. That's our main driver in life. And that's, I think that's the American dream, but I don't think that's your life's mission. To spend your life pleasing yourself. Have you ever considered that it's your pursuit of self that's leading you to be so unhappy? Have you ever considered that it's your pursuit of self that's leading you to be fearful of God? See, some of us live in that space, don't we? You're like waiting for, waiting for God to get you back because of something you've done. And I know this is, this is going to be kind of confusing because we've talked about no condemnation. And, and now we're talking about like this reality that we sometimes feel of conviction. But I, I love Hebrews 10, 27. It says this, dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. See, I think the reason why sometimes we're so living, we're so fearful of God is because we're not living right. Because what's on our minds is not of God, but it's of the devil. It's of our enemy. We're so focused on ourselves. And then we wonder why we feel like God is always upset with us. We wonder why we feel like God is just waiting to punish us. Maybe, maybe because you are deliberately continuing to sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So this is a choice for us as Christians. We have a choice. We can make a decision What are you spending your time thinking about? What consumes your thoughts? What's the first thing on your mind when you wake up? What's the last thing on your mind when you lay down? Thinking of on sinful things leads to death. Thinking on things of the spirit leads to life. And this is why, exactly why Jesus said this. The thief's purpose is to steal kill, and, steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's John 10, 10. God has come to give us life. Let's take a look at verses 9 through 11. But you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're not, you are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all lives within you. So even your body will die because of the sin, even though your body will die because of sin. The spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. See, Paul's encouraging the church at Rome, and, and this ought to be an encouragement to us. This old way, living according to our sinful nature, if you are in Christ, this is not your path. You're not there anymore. You may feel like you're there because you struggle with the sin. Again, you struggle with the sin. You're in that tension because you are there. The struggle's good. The tension's good. 
You ought to feel bad when you do the things you don't want to do. It's called conviction. It's called God at work in your life who's trying to shape and mold and guide your life. So this is a good thing. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit living within you. So this is really good news. You're not controlled by that old sinful nature anymore. You now have a choice. Again, Paul's just told us, like, what are we thinking about? This is how we know. The Spirit's at work behind the scenes. And I think sometimes we wish the Spirit wasn't at work behind the scenes. I think sometimes we wish the Spirit at work was more, was more obvious, was more tactile, was something that we could really point to as evidence. But the Spirit's at work behind the scenes. Paul is... Paul is not oblivious to reality. He says, you're, you're going to die as Christians. Like, we're all going to die because of sin, but you're also going to be raised from the dead. Let's look at verse... This might be the record breaker, Joe. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Did you just hear what Paul said? You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are his children. And since we're his children, we're here as heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. But if we want or to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So because all of these things are true, we don't have to live our old selves. We're not bound by our old sin. We don't have to be obedient to that. You will only do this, not by, not by trusting in yourself, but by trusting in the Spirit. That's the only way. If you want to know what the path is to living according to the Spirit, it is easy. It's live according to the Spirit. When you feel that tension, when you experience that pressure, and I know, I, like, it's not easy, but it's possible. And that's what Paul is telling us. See, we don't have anything to fear. As people who are living in that space of tension in our lives. As Christians, we should not be wondering when God is going to strike us down because we haven't been good enough. I would submit to you, if you're living in that space, then you don't know God's heart for you. You don't know how much God really loves you. You don't know how much God truly cares about you. 
You're his child, but you're not just his child. I love this section so much. You're, an, you're not an heir of partial inheritance. You know what partial inheritance is, right? If you have multiple children, there's one pot, right? There's one pie, and everyone's going to get a slice out of that. That's a partial inheritance. That's not what's going on here. What the text tells us is we are heirs of God's glory. God's glory is not limited to a pie. We get access to all of it. But, verses 18 through 25, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. See, the pathway to receiving God's glory includes suffering. And it is at this point in the gospel of Jesus Christ that many of us want to bail. Like, we want the glory, but without the suffering. We don't want the pain. We don't want the bad things that come with receiving God's glory. And I think, and I think so much of this is, is because we're just, again, we're just so accustomed to comfort. We're so accustomed to comfort. You know my favorite analogy at this point. Last Sunday night, I get into Richmond, Virginia at like 11.15 p.m., get to my rental car, push the start button because who wants to turn a key? I mean, this is 2022. Push the start button, and the, the car rental place had turned on the button where the steering wheel was heated. It was 65 degrees outside. And I thought like I was in heaven with that heated steering wheel. It immediately made me regret driving the car that I have because it doesn't have a heated steering wheel. Like, do we see how insidious this whole thing is? Like, we're so, we're so used to, to being comforted and comfortable. But the path to God's glory is a path paved with hardship and suffering and reality. And it takes work. And it takes effort. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because what worthwhile thing have you ever done in your life that wasn't hard? What worthwhile thing have you ever done in your life that didn't require effort? 
Why do we think that being molded and shaped into the image of God is going to be any different? Where did this idea come from? This is what Paul means when he's writing about groaning. It's painful. We're groaning because we're in pain. Because we're crying out for salvation. We're crying out for renewal. It is painful. It does hurt. But what Paul tells us, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Nothing. My translation of that would be, your suffering, it's, it's going to be worth it. What you're having to endure, it's worth it. Let's read verses 26 to 30. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness for, for example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying because the Spirit, for the Spirit, pleads for us in believers in harmony with God's own will. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. When we pray, consider what you're praying for may not always be according to God's will. Consider that. I submit to you that often my prayers may not always be in accordance with God's will. But the Spirit's not like that. When the Spirit pleads for us, the Father knows because what the Spirit is pleading for is in accordance with his will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. These children of God that Paul was talking about, Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. For those of us who are in Christ, this is us who he's talking about here. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. See, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're tempted to ask, like, okay, great, Holy Spirit, intangible. I don't understand what that means. Somebody keeps telling me that the Holy Spirit's living inside of me. Like, what? I don't even know what that means. It tells us he's praying for us. He's praying for us. See, the Holy Spirit knows what we actually need. We think we know what we need. We think we know what is best for us. The Holy Spirit, who's dwelling inside of us, actually knows what's best for us. So when we groan, I wish my car had a heated steering wheel. Like when we groan, God's like, uh, that's really not according. To, I mean, that would be nice, but that's really not according to my will for your life. See, I have, I have more for you than a heated steering wheel or whatever your fill in the blank is. God is more for us. God's working all things together for good. And that sounds like a great coffee cup verse, doesn't it? 
until you read the whole thing. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, God loves you whether you love him or not. But God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And again, he doesn't just love you because he has to, because he has to love everybody. He loves you for you. I think there are times when it feels like what's happening in our lives isn't good for us. Anybody ever been there? It doesn't feel like it's for our own good. It feels rotten. It feels like we're getting the, the, the wrong side of the stick. And I think, honestly, when I'm living in that space, it's because I'm not waiting patiently. I'm not waiting confidently. I'm not waiting, hopefully. And the thing that I'm asking God for is not in accordance with his will. It's outside of his purpose for my life. But God knew us and he's called us. He's chosen us. I, lo- I love just the way Paul talks about this. He knew us. He chose us. He called us to go to him. He gave us right standing. He's given us his glory. And I think the reality of it is some of us want more than that. That sounds really great. But you know what? Can I just have a, could, could we add a better job to that? Could, could we add like, all, like those spiritual things? That sounds really good. Um, can't wait to die. Can't wait to go to heaven. My body's growing for that. That's going to be super fantastic. But you know what I'd really like? Like, that, I, and, like all that and. And I wonder for you, like, what's your and? What's your and? What's your fill in the blank? The word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 to describe that is idolatry. And the phrase that we've been reading about so far is those things lead to death. So you remember when Jesus said, and this one's, this is free, this is not in you version, right? Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the entire world but forfeit your soul? See, there's a way to live where you have everything your little heart could ever desire. But you're not following Christ and that's going to lead to death. So what's the value? What does all this mean? Let's finish this chapter out. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with 
himself. That's the righteousness we've been talking about throughout. Like if we tug on a thread, it's going to lead back to God's righteousness. See, God has made you righteous. We're righteous with God. We don't have to be righteous with one another. You might not think I'm righteous. I might not think you're righteous. Doesn't matter. God is the determiner of what righteousness is and what righteousness looks like. And if that was true for you, who then will condemn us? Do you hear how powerful this is? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's hand, pleading for us. For us, for us, for us. Can anything ever separate us, separate us from Christ's love? I love this next one. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or are threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is so, this is such good news for us. See, you are safely and securely inseparable from God and his love for you. Safely and securely. Some of us think that we can determine our position with God by our circumstances. And you know who you are. Some of you have decided that because of the circumstance that you're in, that you're not loved by God. And Paul is telling you the complete opposite. I said this earlier today. One of the greatest conclusions you can ever come to in your life is that God loves you. If you could, man, if you could decide that on the front end, What if that was your first thought every day? I am chosen by God, called to come to him. I'm righteous before God. I'm living in God's glory. What would your life be like if that was your story? If the prevailing narrative of your life the prevailing identity that you base your entire life on wasn't your job or your background or, or through, your, through the car you drive or through your spouse. What if your prevailing identity was chosen by God? See, because then when people say bad things about you, you know what? If you're righteous before God, why would you care what someone else thinks about you? 
Why would you allow that to make any difference in your life? And I think for some of you, this is like, this is your takeaway today. Is knowing who you are in Christ. Because some of you are so wrapped up in the calamities of your life that you refuse to see God's love for you. Some of you, because of what's happening in your life, you're so caught up and so wrapped up in that that you can't see that God loves you. You refuse to see that God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And here's, he has nothing else to prove to you. Jesus doesn't have to do, God doesn't have to do a single additional thing to demonstrate and prove that he loves you. He just doesn't. He doesn't have to give you a heated steering wheel. Like, you don't owe you that. He didn't owe you his son. And I hope, and I so wish, and this has been on my mind all week long, for you. If you would just know that God loves you and you would just find satisfaction in that. If you'd rest in the truth of that. If you are, if you're here today and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, I have some good news for you. This is good news. You can't outsend God's grace. You can't outsend God's mercy. You can't outsend his kindness. You can't outsend his love. And this is going to now create an additional set of questions that Paul's going to go into over the next several chapters. Like, what does security really mean? Like, we get asked this question can I lose my salvation? Right? I always love Mike Andrews' answer to that question. What? You mean like I lose my car keys? Like we are, we are safe and secure in God's love. And all you have to do, like I, this sounds simple and I know it sounds ridiculous because we live in a complicated age. But it's really simple. The only thing you have to do is accept his love. Accept it. Recognize that you are a sinner, which, I mean, you know, right? Newsflash, God knows. Recognize and accept that you are a sinner and receive God's mercy and grace that's been offered to you. So you don't have to keep living the way that you're living. You don't have to keep choosing that cycle that you perpetually find yourself in. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, I would love for you to be confident in the salvation that Jesus has given you. I would just love for that. Like, however, like decide on the front end who you are in Christ, decide on the front end that God loves you, like whatever that looks like, whatever phrase is going to connect with you in your situation, like just relax in the comfort that Jesus has saved you. What would that be like for you to have an incredible level of comfort? And then when you did approach God's throne, you weren't afraid he was going to go run behind the wall and bang on it first. But the Bible tells us, again, this, this is not in you version, boldly approach the throne of grace. We'll find his mercy boldly. So when we sin, we should be sorrowful, we should feel bad, we should feel convicted, and we should go in there like, God, 
you know what? We both know why I'm here. Again, it's the same thing I was here for yesterday. And there's no condemnation. That's not taking advantage, well, that's not taking advantage of the grace in the way that sometimes we think it's taking advantage of God's grace. Flaunting it. God's going to forgive me anyway, so I may as well do, that's not this. This is taking advantage of God's grace in the right way. And to everyone, I want you to know that our flesh and our death does not have the last word in our lives. Christ has completed his work, and it's being completed now in your own life as you kill the sin that entangles you. As you feel that tension and you fight that fight, and man, you know, we certainly, we want to win more than we lose, right? Like, that would, that's a lofty goal for me, to win a few more than I lose. To be more faithful today than I was yesterday. That's where we want to be going. And even when we feel the tension, and even when we fail, God doesn't condemn us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful that the power that, that raised him from the dead is the same power that lives in us. You have given each and every person the ability who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them to say no to sin. To make a different choice, to not be bound to their sin. I pray today. That for those of us who, who are living out of false identities, that we would repent of that because that's sin. When we're finding who we are in things other than you, that is sin. And we need to bring that to you. We need to kill that thing. We need to admit it. We need to confess it. Maybe we need to talk to another brother or sister in Christ and say, you know what? I'm finding my identity in things that aren't of God and I need help. Help us to find our identity in you. Help us to decide on the front end every single day that you love us. That you've shown mercy and grace and kindness. And with that, we can't be condemned. No one can condemn us. Because we have been made righteous in your sight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.